Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger Medicine Podcast. Today, I have had the, the pleasure of speaking with William Wayland, who is the head coach and owner of the Powering Through Strength and Conditioning Facility down in Essex in the UK. Now, Will is a strength and conditioning specialist who works with all kinds of different athletes and backgrounds. His specialisms lying in um, UFC fighters, MMA fighters, uh, professional boxers, grapplers, and, and professional golfers as well. Uh, he's the strength and conditioning consultant for the PGA European Tour, and that sees him traveling all over the world with, with professional golfers, uh, working alongside them on their strength and conditioning. So why did I want to speak with Will? Well, I've been following him for quite a number of years now and have just seen the consistency with which Will practices his craft and the way that he conducts himself in, in frankly, quite a, um, quite a treacherous looking industry. The health and fitness industry is so difficult to navigate, I feel, that when you see someone like Will who is just consistent, he's honest and takes a very considered approach to his craft it's it's quite a it's quite a rare thing so he had written a couple of articles that I thought were quite outstanding um, that I wanted to discuss with him today one of them was about his own perspective on the practice of strength and conditioning uh, taking a pragmatist approach and I thought there were quite a lot of parallels to medicine and actually to lots of areas in life uh, so there was that, and there was also the article that he had written um, entitled Grappling with Depression. And when you've got somebody as as kind of massive and intimidating looking as Will, who is working with uh, alpha males in, you know, grappling and wrestling, um, MMA, etc., somebody like him to step forwards and to be so open and candid about his own mental health is is really quite refreshing and I think is quite empowering for other people to to know about as well. So so these are the things we that we talked about amongst other things. I'm I'm not going to say much more except for please go and check him out um, at powering through on Instagram and the social medias and also powering-through.com to look at his website. Uh, without further delay, I bring you William Wayland. Today, I have got William Wayland, an SNC coach, who is joining me for a conversation um, about all things SNC, um, some of the things he's been going through in the past uh, with regards to uh, depression, and also an article that he's written um, on pragmatism in SNC, and hopefully some other bits and pieces as well. How are you doing, Will? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me, Julian. Oh, no, thanks a lot for joining. Actually, <clears throat> it's weird because I think. I think the internet always allows you to have this phenomenon where you feel like you've known somebody kind of for a while, but you've never actually spoken to them. No. And I sort of have that with yourself because <laughs> we, we sort of know a lot of the same sorts of people and you've you've actually programmed for me in the past, I think in like yeah. 2012 or something. Yeah, we've moved in the same circles for a long time and I think I did I did program for you a long, long time ago. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I it's, think... Uh, <laughs> I think it was at that time I came to you and I said, oh, I, I want to, uh, you know, my goals are quite simple. I'd like to do Olympic lifting and parkour and gymnastics and I'd like <laughs> to do some running. And, and you're like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it came up with something very cool for me. But 
you also, I think we have a, a few shared interests. I know you, you're quite into Nassim Taleb and uh, Jordan Peterson as well. And you certainly have a bit of a punch on for cigars, which uh, is a very, <laughs> got a very impressive cigar game going on. I've got I to gotta, I gotta be honest, I feel slightly guilty about that, talking to a medical doctor. So, <laughs> you know, it's uh, perhaps not the best best advice thing. Yeah, on the record, don't don't uh, I don't advise smoking, <laughs> but off the record, can definitely appreciate a good Cuban. <laughs> oh, but yeah, so um, as I mentioned, sort of off um, air, as it were, there were kind of a few things which I wanted to get into with you today about um, three three main topics really, and the first one just to kick it off, you you wrote an article on pragmatism in the strength and conditioning world and as I was reading through that I can't even remember how I stumbled across it but as I was reading through it I noticed a lot of similarities with with medicine and actually just it was just quite an interesting take that you had on what I think can often be quite a confusing world to outsiders which is the strength and conditioning world um it seems like quite a quite a complex field and there's a lot of um there's a lot of talk about biomechanics and a lot of different like quantitative things which are quite hard for people to get their head around but you you gave a very different perspective on that would you mind just sort of saying first of all why you wrote that piece um yeah sure so that was a, a piece for simply faster um, that I wrote a couple of, I think it must have been nearly a year and a half ago now, thereabouts. And basically, um, the, the idea is that um, dogmatic thinking can can kind of seep into everything we do. And um, strength and conditioning was starting to be taken over by a lot of what we can call um, small world thinking, uh, in that if I do X, I can expect Y outcome. And it's this idea that, that, that basically ignores um, the phenomenology of, of athletic training in that let's let's take an example. Uh, if we have a power lifter, so a very, very singular example, we have a power lifter. Um, he goes to a meet and he opens at, let's say, 200 kilo squat and doesn't doesn't make it. Now, uh, a simple perspective would be on that day at that place in time, that guy wasn't strong enough. Okay, well, um, there's also the other argument that how was his warm up? How did he sleep that night? Was his belt on right? Did he put his singlet on properly? Does he need to go to the toilet? You know, had he eaten well that morning? So um, there's a whole phenomenological aspect that we have to consider when it comes to achieving performance outcomes and that we can't be so arrogant as to say, if you do X, you'll get a specific outcome. Um, especially in sport, um, and you know this. This is, I'm sure, in medicine, similar thinking is um, particularly when it comes to pharmacology. For instance, we can later link that to depression. That you know, if you take X, you'll you'll get a specific outcome. Whereas actually, there's a, a ton of phenomenological factors that need to be considered um, that are not being considered. Uh, and th- how that relates to pragmatism is that a you can't be so sure of yourself all the time, and b you need to be reflexive and adaptable to any situation that kind of comes your way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how how did you even 
Because I understand, did you start off in your field as a lecturer? Um, um, yeah, I, I taught sports science for a while. And I, I guess that was probably the start of it, to be honest. Mm. Because what I saw was, um, you know, I was an athlete myself. Uh, I'd been around, um, you know, good sports science lecturers in the past. It were kind of hands-on. And then when I went into education, um, I looked around and saw my colleagues um, and none of them had had any really real world experience. Most of them had come straight from uh, MSc or whatever and had gone straight into education. So they were teaching students who could be tomorrow's S&C coaches, tomorrow's sports scientists, tomorrow's sports coaches um, and weren't really imbuing them with the skills they actually really needed to take on, um, you know, actually coaching. So um, at that point, I started questioning things. So, well, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, you can teach a person about all about VO2 max, substrate metabolism, this type of stuff. But when you've got, um, you know, a lady in a gym, for instance, in her 60s, who's never lifted weights a day in her life, how's that going to help her? Mm. You know, and this was kind of the intersection I was kind of reaching again and again. It's like, well, information's great. Don't get me wrong. Understanding is great. Um, and if we scale this up to, say, um, you know, high level sport you've got an elite marathon runner um you know you can obsess and obsess about their vo2 max yes it's a precondition for being a great marathon runner but it might not be the thing that makes the difference and it's 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 this type of thinking of, of, of small world thinking where um physiologists obsess over physiology biomechanists obsess over biomechanics nutritionists will obsess over nutrition right um as opposed to taking perhaps a semi-holistic approach and we're not saying you have to master secondary fields um but just be aware of them and then be ready to um you know uh what's the word be ready to 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 uh point people in the direction of other experts when when the time is needed uh, refer sorry i couldn't think of the word refer out other people so for instance at, at, at my facility um i have three great physios who i trust implicitly and we refer back and forth and we're, we're you know because we have that trust and that understanding of each other's approaches um, I, I, again, I'm not a physiotherapist. Uh, I have understanding of, of bits and pieces, but when it comes to, to you know, uh, you know, very formal assessments, bed work, um, and proper rehabilitative um, exercise approaches, you know, I've got a fuzzy idea of how that works, but that's not my realm. That's not what I do. But it's having having that ability to understand where, um, you know, what I do ends and where something else else begins. But a lot of people don't have that. They they kind of cloister themselves off, and it's a it's a one in one out sort of approach to dealing with problems. Mm, so you, do you see that quite a bit then at the moment in in the like the fitness world, the S and C world, people just trying to monopolize all the different aspects and think they can just do it all. Yeah. So <clears> it's <throat> it's um it's a case of um I, I I don't like the term stay in your lane. I think the phrase should be should be have an understanding of what's happening in the lanes next to you, you know, if, if, if that makes more sense. So I've got a job to do. I'm trying to achieve performance outcomes, but I need to, um, you know, uh, I need to be objective. I need to integrate my own personal experience, um, you know, and, and figure out a way to make what I'm doing work for the clients and uh, that I'm working with. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, Sometimes you you meet people who who have unpractical or unworkable ideas because they've been so cloistered into a singular way of doing things they can't break out of that 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 box they've put themselves in, 
And that's where, you know, when we reach into pragmatism, uh, I guess the difference between a pragmatist and a non-pragmatist is that they're willing to make mistakes and they've got they've got scars. And I say, and I say this quite a lot. Um, I think it was a, a Alain de Botton quote in the if you can't take a look at what you were doing a year ago and cringe, you're doing something wrong, you know, and and, and I do. I look back at some of the stuff I did 10 years ago and I, it makes me cringe because I, I know that, that at the time, perhaps that was what I thought was adequate. But now I look back and I can see the inadequacy of what I was doing. And that's a that's a big part of being a being a pragmatist. If you're so sure that everything you're doing is exactly right all the time, mm. um, you know, how are you ever going to improve, you know? Yeah. Uh, what do you think's the because the penalty for that sort of thing um in i don't know like engineering you like oh this is definitely the way to build this bridge and by all accounts it's probably not the best way the the price is it collapses and you go to jail but in in snc and in the the fitness industry what's the how does that self correct if people are um for example stuck in their in their ways or they're doing something dogmatically or they're teaching or training people in a way which perhaps is less than ideal um when when does that get corrected does it ever get corrected or are, are there people so, out there who no mm. so this is the thing sometimes it doesn't because again phenomenology makes things so fuzzy mm. that sometimes people succeed in spite of uh, less than adequate training approaches which is why we can't be so arrogant as to think that perhaps the training we're doing is having the effect it's having. Now, a pragmatist understands this. Someone who, who, who uh, you know, is just a opportunist or, um, you know, doesn't understand that and, and will just keep motoring on thinking that, that, that what they're doing is, uh, you know, working very, very well. And there are examples of, of well-known trainers who picked up, say, a celebrity client or a well-known client. And everyone looks at their methodologies and goes, this is horrible. What are you doing? But because because the athlete or the client or a bit of celebrity, whatever, has the, you know, they're bought into this. Right. Okay. You know, this, this guy is suddenly propelled to being an expert. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and we can point at celebrity trainers, for instance, or, or you know, because um, initially, especially with very untrained individuals, most training approaches will work at least at first. So that initial success then acts as a, as a, as a, you know, uh, uh, a springboard um, for, for for potential future uh, success. But it's 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 interesting how phenomenology just makes that, you know, there are definitely cases, and going back to your engineering example, for instance, uh, let's say, let's take an example of a car. So a car 50 years ago, you know, you can still find 50-year-old cars, right? They still drive, they still get from A to B, but design has changed in 50 years right modern cars are completely different they're far more efficient they they you know they they crumple when they crash so the driver doesn't get flung out the windscreen you know there's tons of small things that have changed that make them overall an awful lot better so you know it, for instance training some somewhat somewhat similar in that um some of the old school methods still work work very well to a point and then there's obviously uh points where we can um get into nuance and so on and so forth where we can make things that much better yeah i guess the the because the tricky thing with sports and performance is that there's there's kind of a je ne sais quoi that goes into some of the the really outstanding performances and and you get people who 
And just thinking back to when I used to do a bit of parkour and uh, other bits and pieces, you'd get people who are doing unbelievably outrageous feats. And you look at how they train and you think, man, that's completely different to how these guys train or those guys and, and other different sports. Some people just... The amount of different factors that go into somebody's manifestation of a particular skill set, um, it, it must be really difficult to trace it back to like, oh, it was this repetition yeah. scheme and these intensities that yielded this kind of result. Yeah, so that's where being objective and monitoring um, right. really helps. Mm. Um, so a good example is golf. So golf... Where I work largely at the moment in golf, I'm quite well known for 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 you know my my opinion on golf training and and I work for the for the European Tour Performance Institute and and I've worked to, and I would have thought five years ago no way I wouldn't be working in golf at all. So here's something interesting. Um, recently, all the all the money that's been made has been made by people who drive the ball the furthest. So what goes into driving a ball very very far? Well. One of those things is being very well physically prepared, in particular, being very strong. In particular, having good vertical strength and then be able to produce, produce that vertical strength very, very quickly. Um, also being able to, to separate the shoulders and hips very well and also having pretty good uh, explosive upper body strength. Things that a golfer, say, 50 years ago would have never given any real consideration. Now, in, in golf, what's happening is is that as people are getting stronger, they're hitting the ball further. Those that aren't doing this are then starting to creep down the rankings. They're not doing as well. So what happens is collectively, there's a there's a, there's a movement that occurs over time towards a new norm, which is that everybody can hit it far. And then once everybody hits it far, that's when people then have to readjust and start focusing on being a very nuanced, you're having a very good short game, being able to putt, being able to to, to play the short game again. You know, whereas at the moment, the guys that are doing very, very well are the guys that hit it really far. And and um, that's because suddenly golf has just discovered, wait a minute, if I get really strong, I can hit the ball much farther. And then what happens is over time, there's that that swing towards, well, if everybody's strong, then it comes back to being nuanced and technical again. Hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So you've yeah. got to hit this baseline of strength. Yes. Yeah. And and for those that don't have that baseline, they're struggling increasingly, you know, and we this is just the start where we start to seeing this overall trend. Uh, and we've got statistics that show that the guys who hit it furthest are earning the most money. So it's it's all oh, starting wow. to change. So you're pretty yeah. much on the you're pretty much on the cusp of that kind of realization within the the sport then would you say or perhaps this happened a bit earlier on but you're riding that no, it's, wave. it's we're, we're, yeah we're basically riding that wave yeah. so so you know whereas other sports perhaps have been doing good strength and conditioning practice for a long time you know i like i think i can't remember if it was taleb or somebody else who said that uh, basically uh or no it may have been jordan peterson actually who said uh, you know responsibility uh i can't remember opportunity lies where responsibility has been advocated yes, yeah and yeah. basically in golf no one's been taking care of this, and now there's an opportunity for, for strength coaches to come in. And people don't like it when I say it, but a lot of what um, you know was golf strength and conditioning in the past was not really golf strength and conditioning. It was, let's call it golf fitness or whatever you want to call it. And there was a, perhaps a focus on the more mechanistic factors of golf. Everyone was very obsessed with um, swing mechanics and um, obsessed with the movement itself. Whereas people weren't thinking about the the physicality that underlies all that, 
Um, so yeah, I've, I've gone down a bit of a golf hole, but I was trying to, to illustrate my example there. Hopefully uh, that makes sense to people. Yeah, no, definitely. I th- that That's the second, well, it must be at least, because I know you do mo- motorsport as well. That must be a bit of yeah. a... Um, yeah another kind of uh, fringe uh, part of snc perhaps but at least my memory with parkour when back oh goodness me 10 years ago or something you mm. were you were making similar suggestions and at the time people were just doing the most weird stuff to get strong for parkour um and and again you'd you'd noticed a a gap in understanding there um but yeah no it's it's it is interesting the other the other thing was um this notion of skin in the game is it i think it's why i have a lot of respect for people who do work in snc and take it seriously because there is this uh, there there is this need i think to have some sort of skin in the game with regards to that it's it's more difficult to sell somebody your services if you look if you look like crap, if you just don't look like you train, I, I suppose some people manage to do it. But if you have, as I see that you have through your blog and other areas of your work, you've tried a lot of the different methods that you use, like the triphasic training and supramaximal training and all these different things. So you you know how it feels and, and knowing how something feels is very different to just applying a set of theories. Yeah. Um, so... I, you know, some, if you're a pragmatist, you're a doer, you know, and and um, uh, I like the phrase, you know, doers have scars. And um, as long as I'm able to, um, I'll keep training and, and, and applying methods to myself. I'm getting older now, you know, I'm nearly 37. I'm not I'm not uh, quite as, um, you know, let's say. The spring I chicken. Bounce. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't, don't bounce back quite as fast as I did when I was 27. Um, and. Um, you appreciate um, the atrogenic uh, consequences from what you do more the older you get. So you understand, you know, increasingly how how uh, not that harmful is perhaps too strong a word, but the ne- negative consequences of perhaps training very very hard, you know, has a bunch of downsides too. Opportunity like cost, to, I guess, as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I like to explore the methods myself because. I understand the second order effects of, of the training. Um, you know, I keep digging into sort of, you know, I surprise myself sometimes of what I'm physically capable of, even even as I get older. Um, I just wish I trained this way when I was younger. Um, and who knows, you know, who knows where I'd be. But uh, yeah, I, I think I see this argument a lot on Twitter between strength coaches, actually. Um, and maybe it's from older strength coaches to younger strength coaches, because a lot of the older guys obviously can't, um, be in the same shape physically, you know, or, or, or perhaps train the way they did they were younger. Right, there's no enough. shame. Yeah. There, there's no, there's, and, and I see that. I'm like, that's fair enough. But as long as you're doing something, you know, a good example being Dan John, who I think he's, he's, he's almost 60 now. He's still trained, he still physically trains very regularly, you know, and he's, and he's in good shape for a 60 year old, you know, um, and, uh, I think some of them perhaps develop a cognitive dissonance and where they're like, well, you know, I don't have to be in good shape, but I can still be a good coach. And I was like, well, as long as you're, you know, you're, you're, you're showing that, that you're, you know, still keep keeping the wellness aspect, you're looking after yourself, you're staying in reasonably good shape. We're not saying you have to be taking over the world, you know, just that, just that you're, you're staying in, 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 in reasonable shape 
um, you know, and actually dabbling still in some of the strength and conditioning stuff, you know. Um, I always like the Bruce Lee quote when they ask him, what are you going to do when you're in your 60s? And he says something to the effect of um, there ain't going to be no other 60 year old pushing me around. And I'm like, well, if you can you know, grab that ethos and, and, and think like that, then then, you know, you've got to just be the best you can be. And, and I think some people get hung up uh, an awful lot, particularly in today's Instagram age, because there are so many fantastic. You go on Instagram and have a look or, or wherever. And there are so many fantastic outliers like showing you all this stuff all the time because Instagram favors the exceptional. It's all you're being shown. And I think if you um, have perhaps poor self image or, or, or low self worth, that kind of stings when you see that stuff, you know? Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think that's what perhaps maybe gets to people. I'm not sure, yeah. but uh, yeah, I still definitely think you need to have a handle on it. You now, Taleb's a good example because he still deadlifts regularly. I'm not sure how old he is, but um, you know, he still makes a, a song and dance about the fact he's still mm-hmm. physically training and that's mm. great there's not, nothing wrong with that at all yeah i guess it's less about um like the objective numbers or the objective performance that you're giving out is more it's a more relative thing it's in in the same way that if a a, a complete beginner um has just managed to do their first squat you're like oh well it doesn't matter if you're just squatting like the bar for you that's that's a fantastic thing and it's it's not about i guess i guess at one stage it is about how much objectively you're lifting compared to everybody else but that that must be such a short-lived part of somebody's career people actually want to see are you evolving as a person and are you still yeah like you say you're still um dabbling and you're still doing things so you're not you're not basically stuck as a decade year old self um and you haven't evolved it's it's about the the relative evolving i guess yeah um and, and i think it i think there's a um i think this actually comes from from the article i wrote saying uh marcus aurelius wants to stop arguing what it means to be a good man and just be one and i remarked just swap man for coach and you'll see what i'm trying to get at you know and it's like well you know phil insert whatever here but the point is just do you know as opposed to thinking overthinking or perhaps you know, quibbling over what it means to, um, you know, what it means to, to, to be a good man, coach, whatever, you know, um, but people are more than willing to, to express opinions on the matter rather than actually, you know, get their hands dirty. Mm, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, the skin in the game part is, it's something that I think actually there's a massive, just, just going back to uh, the comparison of, of medicine as well, because I think there's so many, um parallels here but it's one part which is massively different because there's a huge asymmetry like a whopping asymmetry in medicine where we have so little skin in the game like if if i'm having to do a procedure on somebody i'm not doing that procedure to myself uh as best as i can help it i'm not going to catheterize myself or i'm not going to put an arterial line into myself the the person who i'm doing it to i've got no skin in the game apart from if it goes wrong i'm going to be responsible for this person so it's it is a bit odd and i think it's it's quite a it's quite a tricky topic and it it's it's been um the focus of conversation quite a bit in the past where how the the question is how much um how much of a physician's training should involve trying new things that they've not done before on patients and and the answer is well you, you just can't avoid it eventually you go from a mannequin and then you have a real patient who's very sick in front of you and there's that crazy asymmetry where 
you, you ha- it has to get done, but unfortunately you've not had it done. Well, probably fortunately, you've not had it done to yourself. So you don't, you can talk through, oh, there's a risk of this infection or there's a risk of bleeding and, and you, you have a spiel, but certainly you don't know what it feels like to have it's just some so many of the different things that are done to patients done to yourself it's crazy so i think i think snc is is unique in that aspect at least um i think better for it as well yeah i think um yeah it's it's a good idea but then the only thing is what can happen is that there's a twist to this and i've seen it happen before and i've had it when um uh young trainers have come in and and i've looked to take on interns and it's when you use uh, your own training approach as a means of informing how you train everybody else. Right. So uh, I've I've seen this before where you get people who are very keen on on calisthenics or, or you know, body weight training or, or um, Olympic lifting, and they assume that suddenly everybody has to adhere to their model of the world, which is um, a, a, again problematic because um, not everybody is the same as you. And there's there's that's that's basically the flip side. To, to that that kind of argument and I've had interns come in before and I've said well uh, and they told me I can do this I can do that uh, I've done this I've done this I've done this and it's like well that's great what can you do for other people and um, one of them turned around to me once and said oh I've never been asked that before and it's like well <laughs> I'm asking you it now you know and and he was kind of stumped and it's because you know I guess when you're young in particular, you know, you, you're guilty of navel, ga- navel gazing, perhaps, and that you're very, very self-involved. And then I think part of the ma- the maturity, particularly becoming a pragmatist, is learning that at the end of the day, um, you are not the most important person in the world. The person standing in front of you needing your help is the most important person in the world, you know. Um, and with medicine, it is tricky because obviously you go for all the training, but you still, you know, I guess the difference perhaps is there you've still got to be able to i think i guess the bridging the thing that bridges that gap is empathy and 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 absolutely to be able to absolutely communicate and empathize with the person with you because um when it comes to dealing with medical professionals uh you people you can you know people trust that, that you're doing the right procedure what you always hear about is if you were treated poorly like from a from a attitude bedside manner call it what you want type of perspective so if someone's got poor bedside manner you'll hear about that. You won't hear about how awfully the procedure went. You'll hear about how awful the, the doctor was from a, from a dealing with you standpoint or whatever, uh, you know, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's classically the biggest cause for complaints is communication. If you've come across, yeah, exactly, in a bad way or you've just not communicated something rather than something's gone wrong but you've been honest the whole way through, then people are a lot more understanding of that, which is interesting, actually. Um, so... It's the other thing that, yeah, you mentioned um, in this in this article that you had written um, is, and I think this is a tricky one, um, perhaps for for medics. But I know that I've I've seen Atul Gawande write about this quite briefly as well. Um, perhaps it's a bit too specific, but you have said i think i quote you here i'd be lying if i said i've not made a few mistakes and had to overcome laziness and short-term thinking and um i know that atul gawande one of the he's a, a surgeon and also a writer he's he's spoken a little bit about this uh, uh in the background sort of a an, an inertia to overcome 
to make sure that you're doing everything that you possibly can and you're striving for excellence at every second and it's almost it's almost an impossible task because it's so draining and demanding and that you've never done enough and there's always this kind of gravitational pull that that brings you down um and and part of that perhaps is is laziness short-term thinking things like that but uh, through your uh, what i see in your stuff is as you mentioned what can you do for this person pragmatically and i think the reason i enjoy looking at your work is because some of it it seems to go quite against the grain um the saying things like you know if you do trap bar deadlifts um uh dynamically it's it can replace a lot of the the effects you're looking for from the olympic lifts and i guess that would ruffle a lot of people's feathers but what you're looking for is essentially a tool to get a certain job done and you're not wedded to what that tool is you you, you're looking for an outcome and whatever the route is to get there that's what you'll take and I think uncoupling yourself from a certain methodology like calisthenics or yeah, like Olympic lifting. And I've definitely been guilty of saying, oh yeah, the Olympic lifting is the best thing ever and these sorts of things. I think that is that is quite a difficult thing to do and you seem to have embodied that in your work anyway. So yeah, that, that process is... is um, so if you're looking at outcomes, um, the outcome in this scenario is I want to... Be more explosive, have a higher vertical jump, be able to put more, if you want to get technical, uh, you know, greater impulse uh, over time, force production. And there are a number of ways I can do this. Um, if that's the outcome, um, why get so hung up on the process? You know, um, and if you're flexible from a process standpoint, um, then, you know, you, you're going to be good because let's say you get somebody in and you love teaching, you know, power cleans or hand cleans. And that's all you've ever really, you, you think that's the best way to improve vertical force production. You get someone come in and let's say they've got a significant wrist problem. Um, you know, they, they maybe it was broken at some point or something like that. They can't achieve a decent rack position, you know? Um, or let's say someone has a complication suffering from lower back pain, um, where, uh, you know, Perhaps a anteriorly loaded bar um, causes them a lot of problems, but however, the neutral position of a trap bar doesn't give them any back pain. So, are you going to tell me that, that you're going to try and keep forcing a square peg into a round hole, or are you going to take the path of, that makes the most sense in terms of achieving the same outcome or a better outcome? Um, you know, just because you're married into one particular way of doing things. Um, and I and I think that's that's the type that's the type of thinking we're, we're talking about here. Um, you know, is that we don't get too married to our process and to try to, to achieve an outcome as, as, as best as possible. Um, and we do see this in other fields, for instance, um, the novel use of medicines that were intended for other purposes to help cure um, other conditions. So that, that lateral thinking, I guess, is, is, you know, is present and is around us. And um, I guess it's part of the reason uh, if you ever talk to people like, let's say, paramedics who are, who are very, very uh let's call it they have a very bottom up approach so there's a problem they have to deal with immediately and they will do what they need to 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 achieve the outcome whereas if you've got a top top down thinker uh, a top a top down approach it's like well this is the outcome this is the path we have to take to get there so they're taking a very sort of up from very low resolution from very high up above uh approach approach to dealing with a problem um whereas obviously 
you know, the 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 the, the paramedic is dealing with the the issue, you know, on the ground, for instance, just for for a, a healthcare example, you know. So let's say there's a specific to pre- procedure to triage, and we're we're dealing with problems in a, pat- a particular way. But you get there, and you know, it could be some sort of horrible accident or something, and there's specific impediments that then you have to work around to achieve the outcome of perhaps saving a person's life or whatever, you know. So it's 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 that type of of, of lateral thinking, uh, I guess, that that's important. That again, the 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 being flexible in your process to achieve an outcome is more important. Than sticking, um, you know, strictly to a process, and this is where perhaps just having some guiding principles uh, is is a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. There's it's um, perhaps not 100 percent related, but there is a quite a famous case um, in anesthesia. I can't remember when it happened now, but there. There was essentially a patient that was trying to be intubated, so they they had been anesthetized for an operation, and um, they were quite a difficult intubation, and it it took something like three anesthetists, uh, two or three anesthetists, I forget the details, trying to stick a tube, an endotracheal tube down into this person's trachea so they could ventilate the patient, and while this was going on the oxygen saturations were just dropping and dropping and dropping and the oxygen to the brain was just diminishing. Mm. Um, and I think within the, <clears throat> within the um, anesthetics room, there was like a technician, I think, a theatre technician who was watching this and was sort of too, I believe they were too uh, held back internally to say anything about what the next step might be, which would have been um a, a tracheostomy so making an incision mm. in the trachea so that you can just directly breathe through the trachea itself and put a tube yeah. in there and unfortunately i think the patient may have died and that changed culture within that environment so that people would be encouraged to speak out if something was clearly going awry but they felt like they didn't have the authority to speak out and perhaps it's a little bit different but it sort of speaks to um the, the lack of, of being being just locked into a very very specific i need to get this tube in this lady's neck um yeah. via the mouth rather than making an incision and, and being locked in there and it costs the patient their life in this case yeah. um and uh, no, that that type of thinking is 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 absolutely hazardous and we see it a lot in in performance sport because um, you know that that same, I guess it's a, a human issue. That same idea of speaking out, not wanting to make yourself a troublemaker, particularly if you've got a high performance culture that's very top down, as opposed to it being collaborative. And I've heard of cases where coaches have made a point about training processes. Uh, American football is a, a good one, for example. They're well known for for athletes sometimes even die during the the preseason training camps because they they uh, silly ideas like no water because it makes you makes you uh, you know weak. You'll be looking for it. You know all this sentiment of of, of like training in hot weather and absolutely beasting people, um, despite the fact that the, the sport not demanding those types of qualities, and then young men getting very ill as a result of dehydration or overexhaustion or, or um, you know rab, rabdo or whatever, um, and because you know. Sometimes SNC coaches, assistant coaches will turn around and say, well, or don't want to say, I don't think this is the right approach. I think this is, this is, uh, you know, potentially hazardous. And I remember another case, you know, where 
again, that sort of honorific culture, the worry of, 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 of saying something out of turn and getting in trouble or, or, or being, you know, losing a job potentially, um, you know, for instance, work in performance sport is very prized and there aren't a lot of jobs going around. So people are very worried or very afraid to stick their neck out and perhaps make a suggestion. It does depend, you know, on the people at the top, but also on the individual to, to, to make that case. But I remember a very, uh, this is slightly separate, but the example still stands. Um, there was a Korean Airlines flight, I believe, that crashed famously um, because the, the co-pilot and the pilot were all Korean and the co-pilot was um, much younger than the pilot. And the co-pilot could see that they were were, were uh, uh, veering off course or something to that extent. And because uh, Korea, for instance, the language is very honorific, he kind of kept making subtle suggestions that maybe um, this isn't the right thing to do, but couldn't come out and really say it. I think the, the, the flight ended up crashing. And then as of since that occasion, now they all speak English. The, the, the Korean language is banned from the cockpit because English doesn't have the same honorific structure. So everything doesn't sound like a, a potential suggestion. If something's going wrong, you can you can say it, you know, whereas uh, when I'm speaking, I'm not trying to honor the guy who's older than me, you know. So just just that type of, of, of being afraid to say things, you know, it permeates everything. It permeates everything and from performance culture to medicine to, to everything we do. And it's just that uh, that fear of people putting their head above the parapet and perhaps having to take shots. But like I said before, you know, para, uh, uh, pragmatic people are doers and doers have scars. You know, you're going to get hit occasionally or make mistakes or, or get things wrong. But at least you're taking the risk you know, to, to try and mitigate the downsides, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I didn't know that about the Korean flight, actually. That, um, on that same topic of taking scars because you are a doer, um, you've you've mentioned in that same article about a sense of imposter syndrome which jumped off the page to me because that's something that I can massively relate to uh only being you know my second year of practicing medicine and it's taking still taking me well I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of this sense of imposter syndrome but it's 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 especially in the first year it was a massive thing so how how is that for you i mean what's your experience of that actually <laughs> Yeah, so I guess it's um, it stems from being painfully aware of your um, inability to actually influence process and outcome. Oh man! Um, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> and 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 all you can do is try and influence possibility, and it's mm. that, and it's being aware of that that I think is is absolutely painful, you know. The opposite would be people overestimating their ability to influence process and determine outcomes. You know, oh, it's like I said before, you know, earlier on that, that if I do X, the outcome will be Y. I know this. I know this to be true. Whereas perhaps if you're more neurotic, um, like I am, uh, you're painfully aware of the fact that your influence, you know, is, is, is um, you know, not perhaps as strong as you maybe think it is. And then you start questioning the broader question of, well, why am I doing this? Why am I here? And that kind of that starts to, you know, bury down a little bit deeper. Um, or, you know, to, to the perhaps you start thinking, well, why bother? You know, um, and and yeah, like you don't feel like I don't know any more than anything else than the next guy. But then, you know, part of what helped me with, with feeling that sense of imposter syndrome is like, well, no, I'm here. I've been brought in for a reason you know um and take heart in the fact that it's obviously you get to a position because someone trusts you 
you know, and and because if they didn't, and you were a charlatan, you'd be found out and kicked out. But I think it's that thought in the back of your mind that like what I'm doing is not particularly special. I'm not particularly <laughs> better. I'm not. I don't feel like I'm any better than anyone else. Mm. You know, um, and it's that that idea that that um, you know. Uh, maybe I'm not as good as I think as, as I as I think I am. I am. Someone's gonna gonna find me out at some point, and it's just you know having overcoming perhaps that mental nausea and and, and keep doing what you think is best and and, and trust the process. Mm, I guess because what's the alternative? You just you just don't do it, and exactly. it's like what else do you do? Exactly, which benefits nobody, you mm. know. Um, so the, you've just got to keep pressing on. I I, I guess or powering through. Uh, yeah, yeah, keep powering through. And that's yeah, the, that's the that, that's the sentiment that's kind of marked my past, you know, ten years. Is that you know, keep doing what you think is right and and keep aiming towards something. You know, to to sort of get Peter Petersonian on you. You know, it's it's that idea that that you know, keep striving towards towards aims and keep growing them as you go and have have you know, obviously don't think that you're 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 omniscient and that, and that you don't make any mistakes. Be critically aware of yourself and and keep moving keep moving forwards and trying to do better. You know, again, you look back and, and if you're not cringing at what you were doing years ago, uh, then you're obviously some sort of, of robot who's always right, you know, and, and, and it's just being aware and keeping the imposter syndrome under control, I guess, because some people I've heard read stories where people have really struggled with their sense of self mm. and, and it causes them a lot of problems in the workplace. Yeah, I guess there's an inflection point where you just, a bit of imposter syndrome is useful because you don't become grandiose but if it goes too far then you just become a liability and you just grind yourself into the ground yeah um yeah spot on absolutely spot on yeah well it's i think you're you're a lot more honest with your your own practice because you sort of acknowledge that there's like a black box approach where you have control over a certain number of inputs into an athlete or a team and but they go into this sort of black box and something comes out the other side and there's within that black box there are these other factors which you don't have direct control over but you you can influence a lot of it from what you're doing whereas other people would say i do a and then b happens on the field or the pitch or whatever and that's maybe a bit harder to prove um yeah, it's 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 about respecting the the phenomenology of, of of what we do, and knowing and knowing that you know that there is an, there is a lot of uh, random factors that we can't control for you know that 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 we have to respect, and it's just making sure that you respect them you know and don't get too too far ahead of yourself you know um, like quickly going back to a golf example uh, for instance we know that for instance being very strong uh, it influences the speed at which people can swing the club. Now, when I talk to players, I never promise them that training will improve their uh, speed. I always tell them that it might improve their speed, you know, and, right. and it's just you being very precise. Again, going back to Jordan Peterson, being precise in your speech. Yeah. Mm. So just making sure that you're you're not over promising, you know, that you're not telling you're not lying and saying things that you know to not be true, you know, and trying to be uh, as honest as you can with the individual in front of you. Yeah. The the frustrating thing is though that I, I think I think actually now you are you are certainly recognised and rewarded for it. But I think the the approach that you take is a very long term slow burner approach that's not 
necessarily initially rewarded. Um, uh, harking back to your comment about you know the Instagram culture and um, probably some some booty shots would be <laughs> more more in line with getting likes and attention and all these sorts of things. And there's this weird inverse relationship between being um, being honest and and being pragmatic pragmatic and things and and the amount of attention that you might get um whereas there are a lot more nefarious sort of coaches or people out there claiming to be coaches who who get a you know a, a disproportionate amount of the attention mm-hmm. for for weird frankly weird things that they're doing yeah um but i guess that's a whole nother <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's that. That could be a separate podcast. Uh, you know, it's 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 an issue that's prescient, um, and we see a lot of it, um, particularly in the states, where you know, slight aside, but there's a, obviously, um, is it physical therapists are allowed to call themselves doctors? So, oh, they, I think they, so. They, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it kind of muddies the water as to expertism. So people will put doctor whatever in front of their Instagram handle, and that already gives them a level of authority. You know, um, and, and whereas like, you know, perhaps they haven't been through the same sort of rigorous level of training a medical doctor would go through. But, you know, the, the lay person can't really tell the difference, you know, um, between one one or the other. And, you know, that causes that causes a, is, is an example of one confounding issue. Yeah. That we see an awful lot of. Yeah, I think it's a weird thing as well, because of because physiotherapists, they I have no idea how they do what they do. Like I genuinely wouldn't know how to rehabilitate anybody who was given to mm. me. It's just such a different skill set, and yeah. I would never pretend to be. I don't see why it shouldn't be just as its own standalone occupation, rather than yeah having any additional handle yeah. attached because it's just such a different skill set. Um, yeah, I like I have I have the utmost respect for, for physiotherapists um, and the work that they do. The the three we have at our facility. Are fantastic and they have to fight for their position sometimes uh because the lay person again often can't tell the difference between say a sports therapist a massage therapist uh, a chiropractor an osteopath and now only one of those is h is a hcpc um uh you know um accredited the other the others aren't so but the lay public doesn't know this they don't understand the difference you know and, and it is why physiotherapist is a protected title but but for the lay person um they don't know what they're getting when it comes to treatment for that type of thing hence the reason chiropractic is still uh so profitable for a lot of chiropractors you know um, you know uh he i'll manipulate you come back 10 more times you'll be fine you know um charging whatever it is a time so yeah. That's, that's yeah that's part of part of the culture you know and then they'll call themselves doctor as well so you know um chiropractic doctor so yeah that's again that's that's you know not day i don't want to say dangerous but yeah. that's sort of part of the issue right well it's just weirdly i was i think i was on youtube just just yesterday watching for whatever reason a video of a child being manipulated by a chiropractor oh. um which was just just terrifying to watch <laughs> yeah and it was for a cold i think it was for a, a, yeah. a cold to have their neck manipulated now i genuinely don't understand the underpinnings of uh, chiropractic mm. but it was just it was just quite scary to watch um but they i suppose that's a whole nother issue as well um so quickly swerving away from that and into a different topic um would it be okay and i know that i'm sort of basing our conversation on two articles that you've written but actually there's quite a lot in those two articles but uh would it be all right to move on to 
another article that you wrote in 2017. And thank you. The title of that is Grappling with Depression. Now, I think maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But my impression is that, as you alluded to at the beginning of this article, there is probably not a massive amount of talk and discussion about these these sorts of things and mental health and and people struggling within what comes across as such a like an alpha industry um i know elite fts i think you linked to one of their articles and i can imagine they might be quite straightforward in the, what they say about it but but it, it does seem like there's a certain expectation because you are managing the training of yeah like cage fighters mma fighters people who are at the pinnacle of like aggressive physical um sporting activities and i don't know if there's any stigma in in writing about this thing i don't know what even the reaction was that you got from the that would be quite interesting but you you did write this article about um in 2017 uh, you you're grappling with depression do you mind just sort of telling us a bit about about that just generally um, that experience yeah 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 sure um uh basically um you know i guess the article it was a reflection because the the depression i experienced kind of happened the year the year or so prior to that so it was a long time before writing the actual article and it was a good it was a good um reflection process for me uh to 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 write that out um i edited a couple of times um i go back and read it now and i probably still change some more things i could possibly do a a a newer one um but it, it came out of a place where the year prior to that um a couple of things had happened all at once um i'd been in a situation where i was uh without going into too much detail um tired of my um potentiality for building a career being dictated to by other people um and this comes from um a a situation where uh the gym i was operating out of um had been sold very suddenly um and i built up i built up a big client base Uh, i was doing pretty successfully everything was going swimmingly and then suddenly that rug got pulled out from under me and basically what then happened, it was just that one tipping point. And the irony is now I own the property. Uh, I own the gym, sorry, that, 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 was, that was sold. Uh, anyway, um, I guess that was the tipping point, just enough to open a crack. And always being a sort of quite wide, uh, anxious and somewhat neurotic person my whole life, um, you know, for the most part, you managed to manage it. But there was enough to just just tip the balance in that I started having sleepless nights, worrying about what I was going to do, um, you know, from a, from a money standpoint, what I was going to do from a career standpoint. I was kind of tired of being dictated to by others. You know, again, that's what will happen when you're dealing with rent seekers all the time, you know, that you never really have your own um, thing. It's always at the, at the whim of somebody else's decision to sell or move or whatever, you know, and, 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 you know, Taleb talks about the problem with rent seekers, you know, this type of thing. So it's just always dealing with rent seekers. Somebody else or, or, always really has their hand on the wheel, um, you know, while, while you're trying to drive. And, um, 
yeah, that was enough to just give me a few sleepless nights in a row. Um, that then kind of snowballed. And then as a result, and we know how important sleep is for mental health, um, I started um, just feeling really awful. Uh, I would get home from work and feel exhausted. Um, you know, I I get home and feel like crying, and it was like I and I never really experienced this before. And um, you know, I'd I'd get up in the morning and not want to get out of bed, and 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 like dragging myself to work was like an effort. And then to the point where um, suddenly it's like I can't I can't get out of it. I can't face the day. Uh, and simple things like simply showering became an, an achievement. And I didn't really know what was happening to me. Obviously, now you can say, well, it's a very classic case of a pretty decent dose of uh, depression, right? Started having a lot of um, negative thoughts, uh, a lot of dark thoughts as well. Um, you know, be honest about that. And and um, I was like, this isn't right. After about a week and a half, I was like, this this isn't this isn't right. And I think the best thing I did was immediately. Um, I took myself to the doctor as quick as I could. They ran the, the, I forget the depression scale where they, but you basically run them through a, a quick questionnaire and said, oh yeah, you've got sort of like a, you know, pretty, pretty strong case of depression there. Um, and they gave me a prescription for sertraline um, and they offered CBT and, and um, away I went. And um, the, do- the doctor perhaps didn't explain uh, the, the, I was, I was, not really familiar with SSRIs mm. and the side effects of SSRIs. Oh, so I yes. wasn't really, oh yeah. Um, so uh, if you thought you felt bad, get ready to feel worse. Um, <laughs> because uh, I, uh, night sweats, my palms and feet were itchy. God. Um, I, I, yeah, I felt absolutely awful. Um, and I go, how is this any better? And I went back, to, I went back to the doctor and they're like, oh yeah, perhaps didn't, didn't fully, explain to you all the potential side effects it sounds like in your case you've had a really strong negative reaction and so i just kind of wrote it out um um they offered me diazepam um wow okay yeah to take the edge off i guess Mm. um and i said no um and eventually about a month to a month and a half i started to feel uh more normal again um I guess the, 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 the beauty of, of SSRIs is that they they um, even you out, you know, from, a, from an emotional standpoint. So you never feel particularly jazzed about anything, but you don't really feel, you don't feel, fuck, you know, uh, excuse me, my sweat. Uh, you don't feel particularly sad or depressed or down. Um, you don't really feel anything, I guess, is the, is the thing with SSRIs. Um, and you feel a, sort of comfortably numb, I guess, is the uh, expression, right? So, um, but that's preferable to being a sobbing, dysfunctional mess. Um, and uh, after that, I did a little bit of the CBT, which if anyone's familiar with CBT, uh, basically it's just um, trying to take ownership of your thoughts and control your thinking. And I did it for a little bit and I found some of the exercises particularly useful. Then I kind of dug deeper and um, started reading an awful lot on stoicism and um, thinking uh, in that fashion, that's where I discovered and developed a love for, for, for stoic thought. Um, you know, I'm sitting here at my desk and I've got, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius's meditations in front of me. Um, and I discovered that and, and found stoic thinking extremely useful in framing my, and I guess, you know, the, the thing with depression, things like that, 
managed properly, it gives you a, and people don't talk about the upsides. There are definitely some upsides in that it gives you a more pragmatic, for one, um, perhaps nuanced and, and more empathetic view of the world and that you can understand now other people who suffer from mental health problems um, makes you more empathetic towards them um, because you still run into people that are highly dismissive. Um, thankfully, I've got a good network of friends and most people were very, very understanding. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a case of, um, you know, controlling those thoughts and, 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 and manage them in a fashion. And that's where, uh, yeah, stoic thinking was very, very useful. And it just feels like sometimes, you know, that, and it's, I know it's very cliched, but you kind of hit, hit bottom or close to the bottom. And then you use that as an opportunity to kind of restructure your, your, your world you know um so and that's what kind of happened and now you know a few years later I've, I've gone from being in one sort of pretty poor position to being in a much much better position and just being grateful for for, for that change hmm. is do you think <clears throat> do you think there was anything before you had um that kind of tipping point as you describe it was it was there anything within your mood or your uh psychology that was kind of bubbling under the surface there because it sounds like it came on quite quite suddenly with the obviously you lost sleep over those nights but it sounds like you had a, as you say really good dose of depression it must have been moderate to severe by the sounds of mm. it um was there anything and, in the background bubbling away or well like a, i've always been a very anxious person um and uh like semi-anxious um so it's always been a sort of slightly neurotic nature um uh you know a bit of a um ambivert so in only within certain situations am i kind of outgoing and forthcoming a lot of situation a lot of situations i'm not um and uh yeah it was always kind of background noise being slightly anxious about stuff but it's manageable you know day-to-day anxiety if you put me on a scale you'd say oh probably closer to you know neurotic um you know um and uh yeah it, it was just always that kind of that that background sentiment um of, of, of it, all it felt like it needed was something to, 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 to kind of open the door and let let it all flood through right you know and and, and it, it, that that pinch point was was the one you know i've been in situations before where you, you I reflect back and i think oh maybe i was pretty close to getting into a sort of depressed state but kind of managed to come out of it again but yeah this, this time it kind of felt like oh there was no way around this problem um you know and and that was enough to 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 let the sort of the depressive episode uh really begin to occur um you know and and now uh i've been off ssris for a fair while and weaning off those is a process in and of itself that wasn't particularly well explained to me Mm. um i've heard some horror stories about people having really bad withdrawal symptoms trying to trying to come off them you know um and now uh i guess the other thing is when i but prior to that um uh my self care wasn't particularly good uh whereas now it's much better um I take time out uh I sauna regularly uh i I train a lot smarter um yeah just a, a number of things that I do to take care of myself my diet's probably a little bit better you know less sugar um you know uh things like that uh that just sort of all add up to to making for a better outcome better mental perspective i guess um um so yeah it's just just managing those things as well yeah i I think the the thing that the way you described it sounded like 
because I've met quite a few people with with depression um, in a previous job in a GP practice. And one thing that you're describing, it seems like there was a kind of almost an observer that was really aware that this was going on and, and took a very, very quick action, said, oh, I need to get to the GP now. Whereas I think a lot of people um, perhaps are so inside that state that it's difficult for them to separate the what what they're feeling from who they are and and sort of the observer of the situation but it sounds like i don't know if it's because it came on so quickly and maybe there was such a a, a state shift um that you were able to recognize oh this is happening i better do something about this but um i just find i just found that a bit quite quite interesting um, yeah my 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 the other thing is that my wife was was very much of the same opinion that this isn't normal to go you need to go intervene somehow you know and 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 i think uh, uh, i guess talking to other people i think what they do is perhaps particularly if it's very mild depression at least initially they put their hands up and just go oh this is my new normal you know and 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 they and i've heard stories of people struggling with it for years you know whereas in my case i feel you know as 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 rapid as my descent was you know the bounce back up wasn't particularly fast but um, you know, I you did use it as a springboard to energize kind of going forwards, you know, so um, I made a lot of, of personal changes. I still slip up from time to time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect and, and, and nobody, nobody is. Um, and I think uh, I think it was again, you, you, you familiarize yourself with a lot of literature on depression. And I think it's, um, you know, Winston Churchill we called it the black dog. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, that used to follow him around. And sometimes it's very, very big and sometimes it's very small. And I kind of know the sentiment he means because I think as a result of suffering from depression, uh, there's always a black spot in the back of your mind and you, you're aware of it. I think that being conscious of it, you know, I guess, um, just how, how bad things can be. And I guess, you know, going into getting, you know, Jungian or Petersonian, you know, um, once you've grappled with that darkness, um, it allows you to, to 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 strengthen yourself and kind of move forward. You know how bad things can be. You know how wretched things can be, and 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 you can you know keep moving forward. And I think that's part of the problem uh, with a lot of people's understanding of depression is that from a material standpoint, for a lot of these people, nothing changes, and they're like, well, what do you mean you've got depression? You know, I, you know, and 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 from a purely objective material standpoint, they're like, this, I don't understand why this guy doesn't have any real problems. You know, why, why would they be, de be depressed? Um, and it's like, well, actually, once that mentality holds you, be it biochemical, be it, be it a, 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 a reinforcing downward negative spiral, you know, once you're in that dark place, you know, someone could, could, could drive a dump truck of money up to your house and it wouldn't make any difference. You know, that's not the problem, you know, and, and there are people who obviously look at things highly materialistically and it's like, no, no, it's not about that. It's, it's, it's about so much more you know, having a sense of meaning, having a sense of purpose, feel like feeling like you're in control of your own life, all this type of stuff. Mm. Yeah, I think, and and the SSRI thing is another sort of lesser understood, um, back to the pragmatist approach, uh, kind of method of treatment. I, th I think the, the serotonin um, theory has been 
slightly questioned. So actually, we don't really know mm. what the heck is going on. It's, it's such a, an odd thing. Um, there's there's so much now. Again, once you once you've experienced depression, you look you start researching everything to do with it. So now there's there's um, there's papers suggesting that it might be linked to your particular gut bacteria. It might be linked to, to inflammation. It might be linked to your diet. It could be linked to your sleep. And again, um, that the, the 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 approach I guess uh, the pharmacologists take is that take this this you'll feel better, right? Um, whereas again, we under what we're understanding now there's a whole phenomenological uh, you know scenario at play with so many moving parts. We can't be so absolutist now. People knock SSRIs an awful lot, but I found in my particular situation they gave me breathing room in which to change um, some of those phenomenological factors and then build a good uh, good lifestyle habits, I guess, and build good mental um, you know mental hygiene. You know, and then once I was ready, wean back off the SSRIs and carry carry on forwards, being in control as many of those phenomenological factors as possible. Mm. Yeah, you know, and and don't get me wrong, SSRIs don't work for everybody. Again, because it's not, we can't be so sure that it's just so simple as to as to take this and then you'll feel better. And and I don't know. In my case, I, I the the effect was so profound, particularly the side effect. It was like I think there's, you know. Um, I wasn't, and I was surprised that like, well, these seem to be very highly prescribed. Um, the effect, well, at least the effect, the side effects had on me is like, I wouldn't take this lightly at all. And, um, but I hear stories of, of SSRIs being given out sort of pretty freely. You know, I'm not sure, you know, how, how freely I don't know the stats, but you know, I know in America it's particularly, uh, heavily prescribed, right? Yeah, I think it's quite practitioner dependent. Um, and uh, I think if you if you hit sort of moderate criteria for depression, um, going by memory, then then that can warrant going straight to SSRIs rather than mm. like talking therapies or something. Um, but yeah, on, I don't know if you've done the the understand myself test, but on the topic of uh, what was the word that you used? Uh, da, 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 anxiety, proclivity towards anxiety. Uh, what, mm-hmm. I can't remember yeah. what the word is now. Um, I, I was quite distressed of how highly I scored on that, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think I can relate to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I have done that test. Yeah, and, and like I do, do steer towards proclivity towards anxiety um, for sure. But they're like little things now that I've, I've realized make a big difference. For instance, recently I've. I've in, in brought in a strict rule of no caffeine after 12 uh, uh, uh you know noon in the day okay uh, and i found that i found that i sleep better by the time night rolls around i'm ready to go to sleep i'm not preoccupied with with thoughts prior to getting to sleep um and it's like a simple thing like that but the, again my caffeine consumption was something that was a slow creep that i hadn't appreciated and then it was like well actually here's another phenomenological factor that i wasn't appreciating you know, was was consuming far too much caffeine. You know, so but is that the only factor that that may have had an influence? I don't know, but um, you know, it's it's definitely definitely plays a role. You know, uh, it's enough to again to kick that door open. You 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 can't get to sleep, so you start thinking. You know, and that and then you start perhaps you know getting trapped in a neg- negative thought cycle. Um, and, and just all because you perhaps had a coffee too late, coffee too late in the day, and now you can't get to bloody sleep. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, listen, I really appreciate you going through your experience there. Um, 
I'm aware of your time. So moving from there, I think it would be it would be great to just sort of start to wrap up with some of your some of your thoughts about <clears throat> principles or take homes or just things that you think are broadly applicable to not just performance based athletes but <clears throat> people in general that they can take away from strength and conditioning or fitness or you know whether or health whether that's uh, principle based or whether that's practical or everyone should be deadlifting or whatever some of the things mm. that we've we've already discussed that i think apply are the the notion of of pragmatism of being a doer of having skin in the game so especially if you're a practitioner of something having some experience ideally of the thing that you are um proposing other people do uh being precise in your speech um you also mentioned adaptability to resource and time constraints that sort of thing uh iatrogenics um were there any other things that you think just for people listening whether they're medical professionals or just you know general um anybody at all that you think would be useful um yeah so there's a couple of things that spring to mind um the first one being this uh, all my work in professional sport and and you get to meet both unsuccessful and successful athletes so you work with those who've made it and and uh, you work with quite a lot who don't make it and nobody ever, nobody ever talks about the the guys who didn't make it and I'll tell you the one thing that I noticed between that separates the two is is consistency. And the ones who are um, absolutely consistent in their practice are generally the ones who who make it. Now, consistency can be a good or a bad quality because if you're consistently um, turning up to practice, consistently doing your work, consistently um, putting the effort, putting in the time. You know, as opposed to say consistently not showing up, consistently not putting in the work, consistently you know flubbing your diet. Consistency is one of the largest, I think, the largest determinant of any outcome. Even sometimes in the case where if you're consistently following a training program that isn't perhaps ideal, but provided you're consistent, you'll still achieve some outcomes. Um, and and it's again just having. Having that consistency to follow things through and keep going and keep doing things over and over again, regardless of how tedious they perhaps are, um, you know, will, will determine your out, your 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 outcome and you know, in anything either positive or, or negative. Um, if that if that makes sense, it and, does. And consistency is is absolutely absolutely enormous, um, particularly when it comes to your consistency as a as a lifestyle. Uh, so if you're a very consistent person, people will trust you. People will give you opportunity. That said, if you're consistently, uh, you know, if you're consistently badly behaved, consistently um, rude, consistently, you know, and it's this, 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 you know, judging a person by their behavior. And you know, if you are consistently um, well behaved, consistently truthful, consistently, um, you know, positive, and consistently always there for someone. Um, they're more inherently to trust you. People more more likely to give you opportunities. So it's just that that idea of, of of consistency, either bad or good, being absolutely enormous. You know, the more the more chaotic a person you are, the less people are likely going to want to be around you. You know, um, because you're unpredictable. People like a certain measure of predictability. You know, if 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 that makes sense, yeah. 
Um, and then this probably speaks to maybe the the depression we spoke about. And this is one of Taleb's principles. And it's that, um, you know, if something is fragile, it's better that it breaks sooner rather than later. So that speaks to like tackling problems early on rather than letting them hide in the fog and then grow and grow and grow and then become a, a much bigger problem. And perhaps with the depression, for instance, there was this underlying problem that perhaps I wasn't addressing. You know, I, I again, I let my business grow to a point where it was pretty profitable, but I was always going to be that I, I didn't have that. Um, it was always fragile because it was always dependent on the fact that I was renting space from somebody else. Yeah. So basically it was, it was, um, you know, for instance, let's take a look at Instagram. If, if all your business is online and the internet goes, goes down tomorrow, what have you got? Yeah. If you're, mm. if, if Instagram, if Instagram is sold and suddenly it disappears and all your revenue is generated from selling programs on the internet, what are you going to do? You know, and it's just making sure that you're in a situation where you're not too dependent on 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 anyone for for your livelihood. You know, and and in strength and conditioning, this is a massive problem because, um, for instance, you get a job for for a badge team, say let's say a Premiership football team or something, and the ownership changes, and they don't like you, you're out. You know, that's not a that's not a lifetime job that perhaps you maybe thought it was. You know, and and there's a real problem perhaps. You know. You know, make sure that you, you you're doing enough to spread risk again, sort of coming from a from a from a Taleb um, standpoint. You know, mm, like a barbell um, approach or something. Have something yeah, else yeah, on the exactly, side. Exactly, and that that kind of spins into just the the next thing, which is um, uh, and again, this sort of something that 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 speaks to Taleb and maybe maybe even Peterson is that. Um, and I know the two don't agree with each other either. I know I know Taleb takes a lot of shots at Peterson on, on Twitter, mm. but he takes shots. He takes shots at everybody. On yeah, he's a bit of a troll. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the idea that, that um, uh, the whole via negativa thing, you know, compensate complexity with simplicity um, in, the, in that sometimes um, and what I think what Taleb says is that complexity is a form of leverage. So people will use confounding or confusing ideas to make something seem more valuable or more less understandable on your part so that you're in need of this particular person or help. Whereas in fact, most of the time, you know, what's simple has worked for a long time and will continue to do so. And, um, you know, and, and quite often with my programming, I'll look at it and I'll look at old programs I've written and I've been like, this is needlessly complicated. What am I doing here? And I'll, I'll pull stuff out and I'll be like, well, once you boil it down to its constituent parts, you know, these are the parts that I can be sure of probably having some sort of effect as opposed to the sort of fluff that surrounds it that, that might not be having any real effect. I've maybe just stuck that in there to make something look more complicated than it needs to be. And this is that, again, being honest with yourself and saying, yeah, like maybe maybe there I was making things needlessly complicated on purpose, you know? Um, mm. and, and, and it's just making, yeah, don't, don't compensate complexity. You know, co sorry, compensate complexity with simplicity as needed. You know, which is a massive, massive part of, of dealing with problems. Fantastic. Well, well, I know you've got a full day of coaching ahead of you, um, but I've got to say I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to share no so much of your stuff. Yeah, I'm really been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I've been planning to reach out to you, so thanks very much. I really appreciate it, mate. Thanks, thanks for having me on. 
thanks very much for tuning into this episode of the stronger medicine podcast as always if you found value in this conversation please uh, show your love by giving it a like subscribe leaving a review whatever you can do and i always like to hear from people you can hit me up julian at strongermedicine.com that's my email and until the next episode take care